Hi, this is Austin Wintry, and you are listening to the Sound Architect Podcast. the Sound Architect and I'm here with Austin Wintery. He's got a really amazing concert coming up in Texas on November the 8th called Journey Live that people should definitely go to if they get a chance. I'm desperate for it here in the UK but I wanted to talk a little bit about yourself and Jessica Curry being the only live video games concerts where the music has to adapt to a live playthrough. Do you think putting a player on stage almost as part of the orchestra makes them part of the performance as a conductor of the music in a way? Yeah, that's how I've described it to the players when we've done it. I, I remember asking Jess about how the Dear Esther concert worked, and my impression was that it was functioning a little bit differently than the way we do Journey. It's less modular uh, or, or, or less kind of malleable to the player, um, although I don't know. Um, and... It's it's hard to say. That's a that game is generally a, a much more kind of you know meditative and kind of introspective experience in general, uh, which I absolutely freaking adored. I, I I damn near flew out to the UK just for that Dear Esther performance, um, but uh, schedule precluded it. But yes, I when I when we brief the players on how it's going to work, nothing is pre choreographed. Um, and I, we tell them straight up, you know, this is uh, your chance to just play the game as you would play it, and uh, and I'm going to follow you, and whatever happens, happens. I do tell them, do try not to get lost um, and, um, you know, uh, wander aimlessly, and don't try to find every little secret if you can resist the temptation, purely because... There's an audience here, and try to spare them if you get bored or confused or something. Um, but I don't think we've ever had a single player on the show that wasn't that hadn't played Journey like a hundred times. They're, they tend to be pretty big Journey people, and so uh, they they are able to be very efficient. Um, but at the same time, I, I tell them, don't. This isn't a speed run either. You know, the goal should be to go as fast as possible um, by any stretch. So just kind of find that balance the best you can. Sounds pretty cool. I think for Dear Esther, they had someone who worked on the game doing the playthrough, so it wasn't as, like, open to what was what could happen. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, that, yeah that's, that's definitely um, conceptually very... Very different. It might end up being. It might end up feeling pretty similar for the audience, but it's uh, that's definitely a different starting premise. Yeah. Do you think that there's a future for these kind of concerts? Maybe with the player playing more open world games and a less known result that's going to happen. Maybe with more generative music systems that has more unknown results for the players. Uh, possibly. Um, it's 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 hard to say. Um, I really honestly don't I don't know what my prediction would be on that because I think it has to be the right kind of game. Um, if it's if it's you know like um, you know I obviously worked on 
Assassin's Creed Syndicate. So imagining a game like that, for example, in the context of this, I don't think it would work. There's too much time spent, um, you know, exploring in a way that is going to be enjoyable for the player and not particularly enjoyable for the observer. And so I think that a lot of kinds of games that's true for, I mean, because obviously the joy of games is, is in playing them. At least that's how I feel. Maybe that's me showing my age because, because I mean, there was a whole South Park about this where the, the, the fourth graders couldn't understand why the kindergartners enjoyed watching PewDiePie. Um, and um, that could be the case uh, for me as well. So... But as of now, I would say, yeah, I think that not every kind of game lends itself well particularly to it, but hopefully this is one of those things that we're just seeing the very, the very start of, for sure. Yeah, it should be really interesting to see how things happen and what other games come to the concert environment. Yep, exactly. So that's a little clip from Absolver, which you recently worked on. Yes. Um, play, playing instruments how they shouldn't be. For example, you talked about uh, the banjo played with a bottle cap. I thought it was quite an interesting way um, to think of certain things and how important it is to be experimental. Or like, how do you think, or how much do you think it's important to get away from the traditional ways of how we play instruments versus the kind of normal way of composing? Uh, well, I mean, ultimately, it's not really about the experimentation in and of itself. It's about trying to create the, the right color for the project at hand. So whatever, whatever takes us there is ultimately what we need to be doing. I mean, as an example, um, you know, a cello played completely normally was exactly what it seemed like Journey needed. Um, so it wasn't for lack of a desire to experiment. It was that I found something that seemed to to do exactly what I needed. Um, and so, you know, having my guitarist Tom Straley play his banjo with bottle cap and with other various kinds of guitar picks and things like that, um, it wasn't like... I had this philosophical need to experiment. I mean, I guess I do on a on a base level. I feel that way about every project. It's just that sometimes you end up with something a little bit more off the beaten path than other times. Um, but yeah, but I end up doing experiments like that. I mean, even Journey, it's subtle, but even Journey has things like that hidden all throughout it as well. Um, so yeah, it's it's uh, experimentation is just part of. Posing, and I don't know, I feel like that's kind of an unsatisfying answer, but it's just the truth. Yeah. a little clip from Tooth and Tail. A much more 
darker game because you described it as a kind of animal farm kind of brutality to the game. Um, there was a lot of collaboration with Tripod again. Um, how important is the use of vocals in your music and in representing the different factions in Tooth and Tail? Well, it's Tooth and Tail is darker in a sense, but it's also quite silly. Um, you know, I mean, it's a strategy game with animals, and so it's it's not um, Absolver is the actual tone. Absolver takes itself a bit more seriously than Tooth and Tail does, um, even though its subject matter is probably not as dark. Uh, so it's it's an interesting. I haven't really thought of them in comparison in quite that way, um, but. Nonetheless, as to the importance of vocals, the whole thing with Tripod's involvement was that when we were first working on our very original collaboration, which was this, uh, this full-length show that we've performed several times in Australia that's called This Gaming Life, that was how we met. The Melbourne Symphony paired us up because they needed someone to help orchestrate their show. And, um, and so they... Um, came to Los Angeles for us to work on it. And I had just started Tooth and Tail. So, you know, this was like three three years ago or something like that. And I was like, you know, it'd be kind of fun is sort of these drunken um, uh, Russian tavern vocals. So I said, guys, I know we're here to work on this other thing, but just can I throw a microphone in front of you real quick? And can you just give me some kind of, drunk singing and I wrote out some parts and even some harmonies for them and they just tracked it down and we all laughed and then moved on to working on our show and then finally like three three years later I was able to use those vocals and actually in the interim the sound designer for the game Kevin uh, Regami he invented an entire language that all the characters speak in and with a pretty sophisticated like series of grammar rules and the whole thing I mean he really went overboard on this and all the VO in the game is recorded in this language and so he and I were talking and I, we were coming up with um, some additional places for, for cues just as part of the job. And, and we realized when the player chooses a faction, we have like these little stingers that announce the kind of theme for that faction. And we said, what if they were actually vocals like chanting? So I, so we, uh, so Andy, the creative director, wrote some text that was almost like slogans or, or mantras for each faction. I then set those to music using the melodies that would then be explored in the, the score associated with each faction. And then sent those to Tripod and they recorded those from Australia just a couple months ago. And so it was funny how there's a handful of vocals in the game from them, but there's almost three years, I think, worth of time between when one was recorded versus when the second was recorded. Um, it just was one of those fun, you know, the vocals were went a long way towards selling the rowdiness of the game and the kind of drunken tavernness of it. And that's really all that their function was. Was there any faction that was your favorite in the game? Uh, no, I don't think so, because honestly, the only real difference in the factions is the music. You know, you don't, it's not like a, a traditional RTS where they have different unit types and therefore totally different strategies. The way, I mean, the obvious example would be like the Terrans, the Protoss, and the Zerg are, are really, you play them quite differently. And therefore, players end up kind of specializing in one or the other and that sort of thing. And none of that is the case in Tooth and Tail. 
the difference in faction mainly changes the color of your commander. Um, the, 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 the color scheme, I should say, because the, the actual avatar itself is a different character, but they don't have any different abilities whatsoever. And your soldiers are decks, you know, almost like, like a card game, like Hearthstone or Magic or something. You're, you're choosing, you're building a deck of different unit types, but you and your opponent have the same exact options from which to build that deck. So in other words, the biggest difference in the feeling from one faction to the next is the score. And as a result, then asking me if I have a favorite faction is asking me if I have a favorite piece of the score, and I'm never able to do that. I try to make all of it as good as I can and and just hope I succeeded, basically. <laughs> a bit like children, you can't have a favorite. Very much like that. <laughs> the one sort of loophole, I, I suppose, to that idea was that the different factions feature different performers. Um, and... The uh, the kind of uh, clergy class, uh, as we called them, the the uh, I think we ended up calling them the civilized by the end. They went through several names, and all my files are based on the original name, so I ended up confusing myself. But the kind of clergy class ended up being built around a um, a sort of pipe organ and violin tango. And while I wouldn't call it my favorite, I will say I do have a soft spot for the violin solo performances on that of. Uh, Sandy Cameron, who had previously played all the really heavily featured solos in Assassin's Creed Syndicate, and we worked together again after that on uh, Deformers, in which she has some um, really virtuosic featured solos as well. And so this was you know, a fun chance to do something that's not quite as virtuosic, but it's very expressive. And sh- she has such a kind of firebrand temperament as a violinist that that was really quite a joy to hear her, to hear her play around with. was a short snippet from Banner Saga 2. For Banner Saga 3, it's kind of coming to an end and they've got their last instalment, which is due at the end of 2018, and that's funded the double amount on Kickstarter. And how's it been for you, um, having been with the game since the beginning, when it's now coming to its conclusion, and does that have an impact on the music? Yeah, definitely. It's still pretty early, so I I can't uh, give you a, a terribly articulate answer both because of you know spoilers and that kind of thing but also because i'm still actively figuring out what i'm gonna do um you know the 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 score the game takes a kind of uh turn that is puts it in a very distinctly different uh tone i suppose would be the right word than either of the previous two um and, you know, for anyone that played through and finished the second game, the very last uh, shot of the game um, is kind of indicative of what is going to happen in the third one. And as a result, the third one, I think, is going to be nowhere near as orchestral of a score. It's kind of aesthetically a different animal. 
Um, but I'm still figuring all that out, and I could end up coming around to an even more orchestral score or something like that. I, I don't know. I'm still I'm still literally quite neck deep in the composing process on it. But in the broader sense, it's the first time I've scored um, a, kind of a whole franchise, uh, in a manner of speaking, where I'm developing material over the course of years and multiple titles. And I have to say, I love it. I, I know that the story was always envisioned as a three-part trilogy. But if they said, hey, we're going to make like 30 of these games, I would be thrilled. I, I absolutely love it. I love working with these guys. I love the general aesthetic and the kind of art direction of the game. And, and, um, and I really love, the, I love playing with this palette of the, the kind of wind ensemble orchestra without strings. It's, it's something I find really stimulating because it's so distinct from you know any other time I've worked with with orchestra um on a game so yeah uh, all of that definitely plays a plays a role what'll be interesting to see is if it plays a role if the kind of poignancy of it coming to an end just personally for me ends up playing a role compositionally that I don't know yeah but po- possibly it'll be interesting do you find that you work a lot with motifs and that it's harder to develop when you get to the third game or that it just comes naturally because you're used to working with them? Well, it's it's a challenge because you obviously it's nice to have material that you can go straight back to and that you know works. Um, but at the same time, uh, <clears throat> I don't want it to just get you know boring and stagnant. I need to actually make sure that there's a constant uh, influx of new uh, new development and new variations. And so you end up having to kind of go back and forth and balance between this idea of, of uh, leaning on the familiar and also trying to push it forward. But the, ultimately, the story is what's dictating that process more than anything. And so that that's just me trying to follow what the story is telling me ultimately it's less about my own instincts you have loads of awesome covers on youtube of your work from fans Uh, how does it feel to have so much love for your work from so many people and also you end up working with some of these people in game schools i think is right um how does that come about well to me it's an incredible way to discover talented performers i mean i remain extremely touched and it's kind of surreal to me that people put in that much time to make these covers um you know it's it's no small feat and so i end up really i love trying to kind of signal boost those be you know it's just it's such an incredible gesture for them to uh to to do that and so i yeah i love just kind of reaching out and getting to know them and say hi and all that. Um, and then uh, to your second point, I've more than once said, you know, damn, this person, this person's actually quite exceptionally talented. It would be really cool to f- join forces somehow. And so, I mean, a really clear example of this would, or the most extreme would be the, uh, the multi-wind player, but, but oboe specializing musician, Kristen Nagus, who did, you know, she has kind of a YouTube channel called Field of Reeds, and she plays like a couple of dozen instruments, or maybe even, you know, a couple hundred for all I know. Uh, the list is seemingly endless and seemingly includes basically every woodwind. 
and she, and she plays them very well. It's not just that she does a passable job. She's she's an exceptionally talented musician and really wonderful person. And she did a Journey cover, and then she covered a few things unexpectedly, like Monaco and a game that I did that virtually nobody knows about called Horn. And so I reached out, and and I remember I had her record the oboe solos on my very first sort of like theme idea for Abzu, which was years before Abzu was finished. That was a little section from Abzu. Uh, how did you take things forward with the theme? Um, and that stuck, and I kept it, and then I ended up writing a bazillion more oboe solos all through that game, and she ended up being kind of the featured soloist of that score. And then since then, I've used her, I think, on everything. I've been using her on the movies I've been scoring, I've been using her on the games I've been scoring, and always playing different instruments. Um, you know, playing, playing, you know, whether it's... Um, uh, Oboe or any of the other orchestral, you know, like English horn, clarinet, flute, bassoon. She also plays tenor saxophone, um, and uh, and then all manner of Eastern winds and all that kinds of things. And and I've just yeah, I've been and and then and then it's come full circle because on the Tooth and Tail soundtrack, I thought it would be fun to because she's featured all over Tooth and Tail, pr- principally playing penny whistle, kind of you know the Irish tin whistle, and she she plays a fair amount of that in Tooth and Tail, and then I thought it'd be fun to to then have her do a cover of the score that she had already recorded on. So I said, basically, do your own version of one of these themes, and I, and I won't uh, tell you what to do. Just have fun with it. And so on the album is, you know, Bella Feeds uh, Tarantella, which is her own arrangement of my material that is all just her layering over herself over and over and over playing like 20 different instruments. And so it's, so, so I'm hiring her on the originals and then commissioning covers. So it's kind of all one big giant blender at this point. Well, that sounds so amazing and creative to work like that. Oh, it's so much fun. And, and, you know, it ends up giving me new ideas because I hear her, um, do things that I wouldn't have thought to try and then I ask more about that and then we explore that and I end up being able to find a way to use it in the in the writing itself. I mean that to go back to your very original question, that's how the banjo and bottle cap thing came about. You know, that two years ago I scored a film where I had a bunch of banjo parts and we tried a handful of things and one of the things that we did was that where I thought, oh, that's not going to be, I don't have much use for that on this film, but I'm going to remember that because someday I'm going to, I'm going to, that's going to be just the right thing that I need. And of course, two years later, it ended up being Absolver. So to me, this, this process of just getting to know the players and seeing what they can do is essential because it, it just gives you ideas to, to try out some other time, basically. How many people, um, like players and repeat collaborators, do you work with regularly? Oh, I mean, dozens or maybe even hundreds. I mean, especially if you include the different uh, orchestras that I work with, both, you know, and I've worked with orchestral musicians in four different main locations, LA, London, 
in um, Eastern Europe and Macedonia and in Nashville. And, and I try to maintain as consistent of a roster of the orchestras themselves as possible. And then, and then we're talking dozens of different soloists. I mean, there's some I work with more than others, like Tina Guo, I work with constantly, uh, the cellist. And Tom Straley, the guitarist, I work with constantly on, on everything because um, uh, he, like Kristen, plays a million different instruments. And, um, but, um, but everybody, but I, but I try to be very loyal to musicians because that relationship, it's like dating. The more you get to know each other, the, the more you can push each other, the deeper you can go with your expression. And so working with the same person over and over again just lets you develop a shorthand and a, and a vocabulary together that, that is, that is more, it's worth more than even the talent they bring to the table which of course is considerable anyway. So yeah, it's, um, it's, uh, uh, hard to say how many, but when, especially if you try to include the various orchestral rosters, I mean, we're talking about hundreds of musicians that I try to be very loyal to. That's really cool. It's it's very lucky. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, for sure. (laughs) Uh, we can listen to your most well-known work and know that it's your music how do you manage to develop and maintain your voice as a composer across so many different video games, even films and stories and genres? Uh, well, I mean, who kn- I, <laughs> to me, it's all about just being authentic to yourself, essentially. I mean, it's, it's like talking to you right now. I can give you, I can just speak to you or I could, you know, put on a weird accent and, and, and go for word choices that I would never actually use. And it, and it would just, not be me you know it would be weird it would be a it would be an obviously a a kind of transparently inauthentic expression of myself and i think composing is no different than that i to me genre is just a word that means this collection of gestures or this collection of instruments have been consistently done by enough people that we kind of put this label on it it's 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 not unlike when you look at um taxonomy in trying to identify you know the genus and species of a given animal or plant or whatever as you trace through the evolutionary history of that animal it's not like there's a distinct moment where where you know this became that you know homo sapien emerged from earlier hominids the evolution is a very gradual and steady process and once we've kind of pinpointed really specific characteristics that that are you know clearly uh, key to an organism's survival in that environment. We we tend to put a label on it. Okay, now we'll call that Homo sapien um, because these salient characteristics have become so thoroughly expressed that now that really is the the way to describe it. But if you go back five hundred thousand years, you know some of those qualities are going to be there and some are not going to be there. And if it's distinct enough from Homo sapien, then we can make the case that, okay, now it really is a different species. Um, of course, there's also the, the fact that if two things can't interbreed, then they are for sure different species. But all that's a tangent to the idea that genre of music, I think, works pretty much the same way. You know, like, like jazz is ultimately the, the genetic predecessor to rock and roll. Um, but if you put them side by side, they, they appear very different. It would be by analogy that two isolated populations can no longer interbreed. That, that much is clear. Uh, the question then is, as we go piece by piece, band and artist by band, album by album, 
at what point do we say, okay, now this is rock, that was jazz, this is, you know, that that's distinctly blues, that's funk, that, you know, these things at their origin points are all quite similar. Genre really is less of a... It's a much more fluid concept than I think a lot of people give it credit for, or that then they are aware, uh, because we think of it as this structured thing. You know, we go on iTunes and we search by genre, and everything's very nice, neat, and organized. But that's all a, a retrospective process. So when you're trying to incorporate different genre ideas into your music, all you're doing is just analyzing what made that genre that thing and folding it into your own vocabulary. You know, if I want something to have a a kind of hip-hop quality, I look and see what makes our understanding of hip-hop is, which is going to come down to usually, with pretty much any genre, a few a few basic concepts. Usually it's instrument choice, like hip-hop is obviously all about the beat, it's all about rhythm. Um, and many, res- I mean, from a from a musical standpoint, not talking about, say, a lyrical or, or 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 performance standpoint, which is its own animal. But just if I want to make a a tr- like a backing track in a in a manner of speaking, you know, you look and you say, how are these rhythms constructed? Uh, how what kinds of uh, colors are are typical? And um, and uh, you you go from there. But that doesn't necessarily mean you're even writing hip hop. It means you're just absorbing those ideas. So I think to me it's it's not so mysterious of a concept. It, 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 another analogy that I like to use is there are a lot of different kinds of feelings that you can evoke by what you wear. Like if I have a big flamboyant bright orange jacket, like if I dress like Elton John, uh, that uh, it's still very much me wearing those clothes. I'm just wear, I just am putting on an outfit that evokes something a little different than if I were wearing jeans and a T-shirt as I am right now. So, but the guy below those clothes is still fundamentally the same. Composing really is not different from that. I, I play around with different instrument combinations. I play around with different kind of genre conventions, or or sometimes they're even cliches that I'm then trying to figure out how to, how to make not cliche. Uh, but it's still ultimately coming through me. It's still me expressing the ideas. So I think to the extent that my voice is perceptible. Um, is just me being authentic to myself. I mean, the key is if you're experimenting with genres, in your effort to be authentic to that genre, it's very easy for a composer's voice to get lost. And to me, it's really important to say, look, I'm not trying to be Isaac Hayes. I don't want to. If I'm writing a if I'm writing a funk piece, uh, I am not trying to just duplicate what he did. I'm I'm going to do my own spin on it, which is going to be different from that. And and uh, if I if I become too uh, obsessed with it being sort of authentic to the way he did it or any number of other funk artists and composers did it, then the conventions of the genre are going to drown out my voice, and the whole thing was, in my view, pointless or at least shallow, just imitation, emulation. So anyway, a lot of a lot of sort of tangents and metaphors, but hopefully something in there made sense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think when you're a student at university, the main thing that lecturers tell you is to try and develop your voice to make yourself stand out from other people. But it sounds like your solution is just to be yourself and that will happen naturally. Yeah, and the key, of course, there is to make yourself interesting. Like, if you, if the, if the 
prevailing advice is be yourself. Well, ask yourself, who is the yourself that you are being? And if that's not an interesting person, how could you expect there to be distinctive, interesting music to come out? And so the thing I always uh, try to make very clear that I think is often overlooked or even full-on dismissed is that we... uh, that, that we owe it to ourselves and to our music to go out and live interesting lives, to, to have uh, adventures, to make mistakes, to have our heart broken, to uh, s- you know, put ourselves in risky situations and, and to try weird foods and meet new cultures and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Every composer that you've ever admired or found interesting, I guarantee you, if you start asking them questions about, or artists of any kind, I should say, if you start asking them questions about their life, you will discover that they've probably had a rather interesting life. And it, to me, that that's no surprise. There's a tends to be a direct correlation there. So I think the and that's the part that music school not only doesn't teach, but it really can't teach because that's not something teachable. It's just a philosophy that you can absorb and take seriously or not. Yeah, I agree a lot. (laughs) Basically, another way to phrase that is just remember to get out of the studio and go do stuff. Yeah, live a life. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, Finally, it's really easy for composers to get stuck in a rut and fall back on the same old compositional techniques. And I remember you saying in our last interview about doing little things like driving a different route to work or anything just to keep things fresh. Yeah. But is there anything you do or you recommend doing musically, like improvising with different people or playing different instruments that is along that same vein of thought? Yeah, I mean, those are both great suggestions. Uh, Varying your process. Everyone should watch uh, Mick Gordon's uh, Doom talk from this past GDC because that was his big focus, is to say, which I completely agreed with. Of course, obviously, it's it's the same point I was making in our last interview. If you change your process, then the results will change. It just mm-hmm. it's it is inevitable. Um, and mm-hmm. so the way in which you change it, I mean, there's an infinite number of varieties there, and and ultimately, the best w- results come when you make changes that you never even sort of thought of where just a, a random spark of an idea will occur to you and say, Oh, I wonder what would happen if I, if I tried this as opposed to having like this toolkit that you just constantly go, go back through. So, um, there's an innumerable number of ways to vary that process. Uh, and I think it's really important to constantly, at least if, if changing the musical outcome periodically is valuable to you, it doesn't necessarily have to be, but it is to me, certainly. If it's valuable, that is a reliable way to really kind of ensure that the results are are not going to just fall into a rut over and over again. And, and yeah, and like you mentioned from my previous time talking about that, it's more than just your musical process. It's it's how you're living your life. It's the food you're eating. It's the people you're interacting with. You know, do you, do you like sometimes I go through periods of time where I go to lots and lots of concerts and ballet and opera and and my friends' bands and all that kind of thing. I go through a period of, and then there's and then I'll go six months and not go to a single show, uh, you know. So it's it's like I'm just constantly stirring the pot on how I use my time in in all ways. Awesome. Um, thank you so much for talking to us and good luck with all the many things you're probably working on that aren't announced and with your journey live concerts. 
Ah, uh, thank you, and I appreciate you mentioning Journey Live. I uh, we have a few more shows that we'll be announcing uh, next year as well, and then I'm also working on um, a really gigantic show project idea that's that's taking it's been years of work and of will be finally kind of sharing uh this idea with the world uh, uh soon uh increasingly around the corner and it's it's something i'm extremely excited about and and um so yeah there there definitely are some things on the horizon i look forward to the announcements <laughs> well thank you and thanks for having me Thank you for listening to the Sound Architect podcast, sponsored by Krotos Limited, creators of Simple Monsters and Dehumanizer. Don't forget you can also catch all of our great reviews and other articles at our website at www.thesoundarchitect.co.uk. If you would like to support The Sound Architect, please check out our sponsorship link as well as our Patreon.